to Radio Free Nintendo. This is episode 197. I am your host, Jonathan Metz. With me today, proudly returning, it's Jonathan Lindemann. I'm back, baby. Oh, no! It's the other JoJo. With him, of course, (laughs) the first JJ, James Jones. Hey. And the G-Unit, Greg Lay. (laughs) <laughs> <Hello. laughs> so so I assume now that John's back he has a, a page of responses that he needs to go through just comments that he needs to respond to from the right, last two the co- weeks the corrections there, there will be no corrections everything he said was absolutely <laughs> you didn't correct. listen to the show did you John to our dear listeners <laughs> none of it's lies. didn't even log into the site I understand <laughs> Shut he's, up. Uh, he's willing to go along with this charade <laughs> I'll go along with any charade you want Johnny man oh, it's, oh. It's so... assuming, I, assuming you explain to me what a charade is it's so good. <laughs> you're, obviously, you're not a Pink Floyd fan. Um, so it's really good to have you back, man. And John, I would appreciate it if you would kick off new business for us. Man, fuck Super Mario Galaxy 2. No, actually, seriously, I, I picked up Super Mario Galaxy 2. With your own money. Yeah, with my own dough. Actually, uh, Amazon <laughs> was uh, running a crazy deal where they had, if you bought it, it was like, Fifty bucks, and then you got twenty dollars game credit. Yeah, and our yeah, and I had I had like ten dollars credit off of something else that I had just bought, probably three D dot game heroes or something. So I got it for forty bucks, and then twenty dollars put towards my next game purchase. So yeah, so I could not resist Mario's wily masculine charms. Oh, <laughs> I heard their siren song again, <laughs> and uh, you know I, I got about fifteen stars deep in Super Mario Galaxy before I just. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just bailed on it completely. So, well, you can't say fifteen stars shallow. I mean, <laughs> but jo- John, couldn't you have just pretended you bought Galaxy Two and stuck Galaxy in and just been like, I've never seen any of this? Well, theoretically, but James, you see, the reason why I like Mario Galaxy Two more than Mario Galaxy is because I feel that Mario Galaxy just really isn't. It just didn't feel like a Mario game to me. There was something that was just really slow to get into and. You had. I just felt like there was a lot of kind of like preamble before you actually got into the game, and then the hub world, basically. Yeah, the hub world. Really wasn't a fan of it, and and I didn't realize that until I played the sequel. Because with this one, you're thrust right into the thick of things right off the bat. I mean, they have you're thrust deeply in, as it were. Absolutely. Once again, James <laughs> takes it there, not me. But so I mean, it... <laughs> once again. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, right off the bat, you know, you have the little storybook intro, and that's kind of, you know, the you can tell the story isn't going to be as as involved as it was in the first one. And, you know, it's pretty much a, a straight kidnap by Bowser. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, nothing else. Yes. He's got Peach tied to the train tracks, twirling his reptilian mustache. Yeah, and honestly, you know, I, I realize that, you know, I'm okay with that. How much exposition do you need in that Bowser has A, kidnapped Peach, who needs to hire some freaking bodyguards, and B... <laughs> Has stolen a bunch of stars again. I mean, well, the problem is all her bodyguards are like a foot tall. <laughs> she yeah. needs to go out and hire some damn mercenaries then. Good yeah, God. You're, you're completely right though. I mean, if if it's going to be the same setup again, where you have to collect a whole bunch of stars, I mean, how much how much like you know story do you really need to tack onto that anymore? Uh, pretty much the only exposition you got is the explanation of the Super Mario face ship, as the game calls it. Yeah, which I actually think is really cool. I love that part of it that they did that with it. It's really fun to run around on that ship. Yeah, it is. It's it's really neat. I mean, it's a small place to explore, but it and it changes too, which is nice. Yeah, I wish that there was a. I wish there was an interior to it. I don't know if there is later on, but you can go inside the hat, but there's yeah. not really anything to do in there that I that no, not there, that I've seen so basically, far. Basically, basically, what it 
does is you can talk to the, that guy, and it has like trophies for all of the power ups you've collected. Oh, cool. Oh, okay. But you okay. can't use them that I've discerned. They're just there. Yeah, I was just going to say the one thing I laughed at during the intro was, um, you know, the super huge Bowser that stomps all over the castle or whatever at the very start, and he's holding the princess in his hand, and he says something like, She'll maybe I should get her to, to bake me a piece of cake now or something like that. And I just yeah. burst out laughing. So like, what kind of a reference is that to make at the beginning of a Mario game? Okay, <laughs> maybe, do you mean cake or do you mean pie, there, Bowser? I mean, really, come on. <laughs> wow. So, so think, John, John takes. I think it there. it's a reference to Super Mario sixty four, actually, or maybe Super Mario World. <laughs> okay. Not porn, but whatever you like, you know. I just thought it was a bit risque. That's what I'm saying. All right. It's intentionally vague, so you can apply your own imagination. <laughs> your own twisted so. imagination. Okay. Bring it all back. Circle back around. <laughs> it just seems like the the pace is a lot brisker. Now, I don't know. Maybe it's... I was thinking that maybe in, in the first game, the opening part of it... Because, you know, because this second one was clearly aimed at experienced players. So... Mm-hmm. I'm thinking that one of the reasons why I've always I've always kind of struggled with the fact like why didn't I really get hooked by the first game and I think it might be because the first areas are kind of tedious like yeah. they're 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 really easy in the sequel you're doing all kinds of crazy things and there's I mean they they throw and there's there's no limits to what they try to introduce to you in terms of kind of skill set it's pretty much assumed that you know all the moves um, I mean <clears throat> if you want to learn anything you can do so on your spaceship. And there's also those little videos that you can optionally watch as you walk through levels that pop up every so often. Yeah, and I just thought but that like optional. right off the bat, you're kind of thrown into these these areas that are really you know inventive and and not necessarily difficult really, but just you have to stay on your toes and you're just you're not kind of running around doing busy work. And I felt that in the first one, especially in the first areas, you kind of you do a lot of busy work. Well, I, I mentioned in their in their view that it does get to the difficult stuff mm-hmm. quickly. Yeah, I got the same impression. I think by the end of the first world, you might hit something that might actually kill you. Yeah, like it's pretty obvious that, I mean, that they're throwing a whole lot of stuff at you right right away. So I was just, I mean, my, my first impression was, yeah, I mean, just imagine stuff probably ramps up really, really high later on. It reminds me a bit of Mario 64 because you have to beat a boss to get the first star. Yes. And that's, you know, I mean, I knew people who got stuck on the first star of Mario 64. Because you, <laughs> oh, yeah. you had to climb to the top of that mountain, which was not the easiest thing to do. No, it wasn't. And then you had to beat that boss. And it involved learning a lot of the mechanics. And I, I had the same feeling with Galaxy 2. And I've played it as much as John has, which is not much. I'm play, I played it a little on my friend's Wii. And I, just, I didn't want to get too far because I knew in a week I'd have to replay through everything that I played here. Mm-hmm. And so... I just figured I've got other games to play. I got, I mean, it scratched the itch. I put it down, and now in a couple days I'll get to really dive into it deeply. But um, yeah, I I agree with you, John. I mean, I feel like it kind of threw. I was impressed by the first stage. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is pretty much what I wanted right off the bat. Yeah, each area. I find that the areas are also are more compact because I mean, in the first stage, you're, I mean, you you get out there and you complete kind of one area, and boom, you're off complete that area, boom, you're off, really, really quickly. Well, if you think about going back to the first one, I mean, in Super Mario Brothers, you can't even scroll left. Yeah. It, well, I mean, Galaxy does sort of impel you forward, but I, I can't see what you're saying, that Galaxy 2 does more so. I think the first Galaxy 
has more areas, and, and especially near the beginning of the game, it has more areas that are kind of more open and right. kind of, especially that, that B world comes up very early in the game. Yeah. And it's just huge and. The B world remind me, reminded me of the, uh, what's it called? Bob Battlefield in the first, in Mario 64, because it's just mm-hmm. one big open square, essentially. Uh-huh. And that was a lot more important back on N64, because that kind of a game world had never been done in three. Right. It was, it was symbolic I mean, at that point. I, it was astonishing. I mean, I, yeah. I was totally set my mind on fire walking around that battlefield. And then by the time Galaxy came out, it's like, I'm over this. Right. You know, I, I, that's not impressive to me anymore. You got to do something different, something Well, and also, it, those bits just kind of felt almost vestigial, really. You know, I almost felt that those, some of those Absolutely. parts were in the game because they felt some need to be more attached to the previous 3D Mario games, whereas I think the, the, the more prevalent parts of the game on the planetoids, the more linear parts, actually felt more like the 2D Mario games mm-hmm. brought into 3D. Mario 64 and Sunshine with something else really seemed fundamentally different from the old Mario games. Right. So, I mean, as insofar as I know, I mean, I love those the first two 3D Mario games, but insofar as Galaxy 2 takes it even more in the direction of being like... The side-scrolling Marios, I'm all for it, because that is still my preferred way of, of playing Mario, I'd have to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it has more actual side-scrolling, too. Mm. It does. It has quite a bit of it. Yeah, so I look forward to... Uh, I'll say it right now. I look forward to playing through the whole thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, see, I'm coming back, and I'm dropping bombs. Megaton. Megaton yeah, right. Good. <laughs> right in checks that you got. That's what I've been it. hoping for all week. <laughs> <laughs> Save okay. that clip, Greg. Save it. <laughs> okay, so Greg, you're up next. Now I've got one more week to wait until mm-hmm. I'm freed hey, from this. You, you and me both, really. At least you've gotten to scratch the itch. I did. I think by the, by this time next week, it may I may have got it early if it ships early. In which case, I probably would have played about as much as you and John by next episode. <laughs> <laughs> I might just skip over it and wait until I've played more to weigh in on that particular issue. But the one thing is, the good things come to those who wait, because the Europeans get that DVD that the Japanese <laughs> get with the little yeah. tutorial bits on it. So I don't understand that DVD that. at all. Yeah, don't don't wear that out, Greg. Uh, I, I, I do want you to watch that, though, because I'm very curious what they could possibly cram onto a DVD that makes it compelling watching. Uh, apparently, it's got some sort of a bit like Super Skill stuff, you know, from New Super Mario Bros. Wii. So, yeah, that, that could be the, the most interesting thing to watch, rather than just like, this is Mario in 3D. We appreciate this is a foreign concept to you, so we're going to explain it. You know, it's probably... <laughs> it's only the fourth one we've done. Yeah, we're on the word on the street is that they're going to actually have a video of uh, Neil beating up uh, Bill Trinan in Photo Dojo. Well, in in the DVD. Yeah, I think that's good. I, thought it was just, I just heard it was just still images of cupcakes with faces on them. <laughs> yeah. Face cakes, we call Face them in the cakes. <laughs> So, uh, in terms of things I have been playing this week, first of all, a late addition to the programming notes. This is the first what, time in a while I've been able to say this, but there was actually an interesting DS demo on the Japanese Nintendo channel. Oh! Uh, and it was a ghost trick. Oh! Mm. So, it's a very small demo you know, that, that I'm sure will be far more content on show. Uh, at E3, and I'm pretty sure they showed quite a lot more Captivate already than this very small little chunk just to kind of introduce you to 
the basic mechanics of the game. And first thing, of course, you've got the graphics, which you know, a lot of people talked about a lot, and see them in motion, you know, actually on the DS and everything. It, it looks really good. I mean, the animation is very smooth. It's got that kind of rotoscoped look, uh, like, you know, sort of old school Prince of Persia, that sort of thing. Ooh. That sounds good. Everything animates very fluidly, not just the people, but the, all the objects, everything just has the same kind of fluidity to it. And then in terms of the gameplay, you just got, obviously it was, a, you know, it was a Japanese demo, so I was kind of fumbling my way around with it, not exactly knowing what to do. But you got, what basically you were doing was you pressed a button and it kind of sort of pauses time and drops a sort of filter over the screen and then you can see what you can interact with as this as the ghost so it's kind of like okay here's a bunch of objects that you can possess and then you draw a line out from the object that you're currently in with the stylus and to see what you can then reach and that's kind of the first element of the puzzle solving really is so for instance if you need to just get to another part of the room you're going to have to kind of chain together object possessions to get there and then the second thing is you've got uh, another icon on the touchscreen that means that you interact with the object, you do something with it, you're not exactly sure what you're going to do before you do it. And uh, you, you just sort of start fiddling around and gradually solve this sort of environmental puzzle, really. It was a bit like something that you might have in Zack and Wiki, or certainly, you know, like some of the elements of Geist, naturally, because mm-hmm. uh, it's a you know, similar sort of idea. But this part, uh, this this early part of the game that I was playing, you sort of like you had a girl that was like about to put her headphones on, and she reaches to get them off a shelf, and then sort of fumbles them for a while, and that gives you the opportunity like to possess an umbrella, which is hanging above it, and then sort of open it into it, and sort of thrust the headphones into a fish tank. And I, don't, I don't know why you're making this girl miserable, but you are. <laughs> <laughs> I hate your and, headphones. And then after that, she goes to sit down, and like you, you can like possess this sort of tray, with, with with some snacks on top of it, and then you can either possess the bowl of snacks, which will like cause a, a, a something to fall off, and like the dog that's in the in the room will go crazy oh, over it. It's just like Geist. <laughs> yeah. Or you could, although you don't think you can. Pos- it doesn't look like you can possess anything living, so for, at least from this. But then you can possess the actual tray itself and move it a lot down the side. So like the girl will go to. She's like not paying attention. She'll reach for the snacks, and they've gone. And she's like, huh? And then she move, has to move then to the other side of the sofa to, to catch up with the snack tray. And then that's, that's one of the, the key things you've done. You've moved her along. And then, like, you need to get far higher up so you can possess, like, this toy that is hanging from the ceiling. And then if you interact with it, it swings faster. And so as it does, it rises, which then gets you close enough to the next object to possess yeah. that. And so th- those are the kinds of fundamental kind of puzzle solving mechanics you're dealing with here it seems you know, really cool i could imagine you could create some very clever scenarios and like it could, i mean i absolutely loved zach and wiki where the kind of stuff that it did yeah. with that obviously you know, be quite different with you know the 3d and everything but the, the, this could uh, scratch a similar sort of itch i think so i continue to look forward to it a great deal yeah and i i mean i think zach and wiki is nominally 3d i mean it's you can't. There's no camera control even in that game, so it's kind of just setting up a diorama for you, which is quite similar to to what you're. Yeah, talking I mean, it's about fundamentally similar to just old school kind of point and clicks, which means you could have probably represented it, you know, for the most part, pretty well using 2D assets. Yeah, I mean, Zach and Wiki DS count on it. 
it's coming. <laughs> but this, the, the obviously the one thing you're not seeing from this is kind of like the whole the the, the dialogue aspect of all that. See, which I presume is going to be a pretty heavy part of me as it comes from the the creative force behind the Ace Attorney games. Like right. the, the only di- the only dialogue I see was he was talking to to the dog mostly. Uh, the, the ghost of time, I imagine, because the dog can actually see him. But uh, the game that I've been playing on my DS that I actually own is Lunar Nights. This um, this came up a bit ago, this sort of uh, spiritual successor slash actual sequel to the Boktai games. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Boktai 4, I think. Is it is it not Boktai 4 in Japan or something, and, and it was just elsewhere that it was that might branded? Be. But this came up on the show a few weeks ago. I thought, oh, yeah, I remember that. You know, that sounded good. And I just didn't get round to buying it. And I started looking into it. I started going back reading some old reviews. I read uh, this review for our site from Dan Bloodworth, uh, who's <laughs> over at Game Trailers now, of course. And I read uh, Jeremy Parrish's review for 1UP. Um, they both liked it a lot. And then I found a copy new, even though it's not probably a huge seller, I would imagine, in Europe. Uh, and it's over three years old now, I think. Yep. So I went and found it for about ten pounds, brand new. So oh, let's 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 go for it. And yeah, it's it's a it's a weird game. Obviously, you have to forgive me, sort of missing where it's really obviously similar to the previous Bartai games because I didn't play any of those. Mm-hmm. But it's really, I guess, the best way to describe it is isometric action RPG. Um, and then you've got a few kind of stealthy bits, which is kind of appropriate given it's Kojima productions <laughs> and all that, I guess. <laughs> But uh, it's a it's a weird game in some ways because there's elements of the combat that are so kind of like what you'd expect in like almost like a Zelda game or you know a modern 3D Zelda or something like that because you've got you've got lock on um, you've got like timed counter attacks with your shield and so you know if you can get it just right you know, enemies attacks will bounce back on them and stun them and stuff like that it's really quite intricate for for a top down. Uh, or isometric kind of uh, 2D game to have such as advanced combat. I mean, you've got a lot of different weapon types between the two characters that you swap between. I mean, generally you've got the the, the one character is a range attack guy and the other characters, you know, close-up swords and scythes and whatnot. But even within them, you've got different attack styles. Like the, the, the Aaron, the guy with the guns, has got like a sort of flamethrower-type gun, uh, like a grenade launcher... And like a John Woo style double pistols kind of thing going on. I mean, you know, they, and they all they do play differently, and you can like upgrade the individual weapons. Or I mean, it's a really intricate game with all these sort of RPG kind of systems and the action elements on top. There's a lot to it, and then you've got the weather stuff as well, which kind of modifies a lot of different things. You know, first of all, you've got a kind of day-night cycle. And because each one of the characters, one of the characters draws his power from the sun, the other from the moon. So that's going to dictate at different times how you want, might want to use the one character over the other. Is it based on a real-time clock? I mean, do you have to play at night? No, it's, it's on its own clock. Okay, so that's a big difference from Boktai. Yeah, it's not related to what, I mean, like I said, I think you can accrue sun points or whatever, like Sol, uh, I think if you've got one of the old Boktai games in the slot and you play it with, with the, you know, where it's receiving sunlight, but that's it. Actually, what you, what you pick up determines which, which Boktai game you have in there too. 
Yeah, so, it's it's different for different ones, yeah. Yeah. In case you own all three. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the third one never even came out in the in the West. It, but you know, so you've got that part of it as well and and, and, and what happens is, is as you progress through the game you beat different bosses and, and unlock these different elemental types for your attacks. That also unlocks different kinds of climates and you actually gain the ability to go somewhere on the overworld map and actually change the climate yourself. And and then this affects certain areas. Oracle of Seasons. It, well, it is a little bit, but I mean, this is this is one of the one of the points of the game which is a bit clunky, because it's like okay, so you get these certain areas where the environment is variable by climate, right? And they're marked with these little statues. So if you see a little statue, you know something about this environment is going to change according to what climate it is. And it might be that, well, if you freeze this water over, you could do something. Or if if you if it's raining, some plants will grow or whatever. But the thing is, the statue itself does nothing. Nothing whatsoever. It's just an indicator. But it doesn't really explain that very well. So at first, you're, you're looking at the statue thinking, well... What's what you know? Like, do I change it here? What 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 do I do? And it turns out you just have to, like I said, go out of the dungeon you're in, go to the overworld map, go to this mansion, talk to some uh, NPCs for a bit, and then get it changed, and then go back in to the dungeon and get to back to that point. And that's just considering as well that at least as far as I've seen, you know, you're only talking about getting a few sort of items out of this, accessing this sort of hidden area. It's never that crucial to the game is you're just going to say too much trouble a lot of the time to, to, to make that especially depending on how close that area would be to the dungeon exit you know if it, if it is quite a trek then you're just going to say nah not for me I mean you have the statues there I mean I just don't know why you wouldn't make it you know so you could do it from that point to be honest it just, I, I, just, I just thought that was kind of bizarre and then there's a few other things like, for instance, so you get these, uh, you amass these elemental types and and you get enemies that are vulnerable to what each one. So you've got like a an earth type and a poison type and dark, light, fire, ice, you know, so you, you know, all these different kinds of enemies. And so what you'll find yourself doing quite often is having to stop and switch what elemental attack you're going to use. And that can kind of get tiresome a lot of the time, especially as it doesn't just work by, like, say, pressing the shoulder button and cycling through. You have to hold the shoulder button and then use the D-pad to cycle through. And so when that's happening quite a lot, it just kind of breaks through. This is something that happens more later on, because early on you don't have access to all those elemental types. It just, to me, having played the early part of the game and then getting farther into it, it feels like that's bogging it down more. Which is not, you know, it's not like a feeling of, oh, I'm more powerful now, I can kill these enemies before. It's just like I have to switch around and, you know, do more sort of busy work kind of stuff than I did before. So that's that's not a great part of it. But the combat in general is is, is quite good, and especially with the bosses. You're still fighting the vampires? Well, yeah, the you, vampires, but like in crazy scenarios, like this one in this sort of giant, like, crab mech thing with like a light claw and a dark claw so it's incorporating the whole elemental thing again it's i mean it's really quite you know, colossal and intricate attack patterns and everything and then when you kill one of these bosses you've then got to sort of purify the body of the vampire but you do this by taking it into outer space and having an on-rail shooter part <laughs> 
That's new. <laughs> yeah, it is. It wasn't in the previous box, I guess, until it can no. be sort of jettisoned into this sort of thing that harnesses the sun's rays and obliterates it. And it's actually a weird thing, because in a way, it's like Star Fox is on rails and, you know, 3D. But it kind of plays like Big Bang Mini, because you drag your ship around with the stylus and then fire after that. You know, it's kind of like you you can't do both at the same time. So that's quite it's quite interesting. But I mean, it's, it's a minor diversion, really. I mean, it's a bit too much of kind of like quite surprising for a game from two thousand seven. It's a bit too much of this kind of let's use the DS stuff. Like we get these special attacks based on the elemental types, and it's like rub the touchscreen to cause an earthquake, blow into the microphone to put an arctic breeze through the you know. It's, Really? I mean, you, you're certainly not obligated to. <laughs> That's you. how I define my game. If I can't, if I can't blow on the microphone, you lose at least one point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're certainly not Easily. obligated to use them at all. I mean, it's real sort of frippery kind of stuff, and so it's got a few sort of like clunkiness with the interface. I think that I kind of like the action RPG blend. It works for me. Uh, I'd probably quite a lot more accepting of RPG kind of conventions than I was when it came out so but but at the same time with the bosses and the combat it's got got the action stuff that I like too and one thing I did enjoy about it was I got to I got quite far into the game I've beaten quite a lot of bosses and I just got to this area and it's like the enemies were just way too powerful for me way too powerful I was like what the hell happened here and I was thinking, like, what am I going to do? I have to go back and grind and stuff. But what I found was actually that going back into the old dungeons, there was a lot of them I hadn't explored that I could now do, basically because these elemental types serve as sort of keys for these big blocks. And then as I was exploring these new areas, I was finding new items, new accessories, equipment, all this stuff. And so I ended up effectively grinding, but it didn't feel like that. Well, it sounds like my kind of game. That is Lunar Nights, one I need to catch up with. And James, you're up next. Right. I'll start with the game that I haven't played a whole lot of and we've talked about a lot just to get it off the table. So I, I've played Muramasa a bit, but I actually got it for my own, you know, sit down and play experiences because I found it dirt cheap. I think it was like 19 bucks, which I felt like no matter how just straightforward action the game is, it's got to be worth at least that. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty oh, much yeah. exactly what happened with me. I like I, I like the game, and at the same time, it it slowly just annoys me. I think because there's a lot of just wandering around, not really sure where you're going. Which in a two well, D, I think you knew what you were getting into, right? I mean, we've we've talked about it, and yeah, I did, but I mean, I hadn't really grasped how much you know walking you can do just to go from one objective to the next. Yeah, no, <laughs> oh, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's <laughs> shocking, really. <laughs> I'm like, this is a 2D side-scrolling action game. Yeah, I mean, is there just dead space in it kind of thing? Yeah. 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 That's all there is. Ten minutes of just walking in Screens a 2D game. Screens with nothing. Just walking. <laughs> and obviously, it's it's gorgeous, so that kind of... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, visually, it's it's distracting, but still... You're... Yeah, you are still going from left to right or right to left, as the case oh, Or in some be. cases, you're going back into the screen, but you don't know if you really need to go back into the screen here, or if that's just going to lead to a dead end. I was eminently prepared for it from reading reviews and all sorts of things, but it still will take you by surprise. Like, I yeah. have never played a game like this in that sense. <laughs> yeah, so I've never just... played a game that has had the balls to so just, just walk for a while in 2D. <laughs> I've, I've, it, in the entire repertoire of games I've played, which is 
a lot. This has never happened before. It's kind of like Wind Waker, though. It's kind of like, here, it's going to take you 15 minutes to get where you want to go. It's true, but Wind Waker eventually had warps. Eventually, yeah. And, I mean, (laughs) but I think it was the same idea. It's like, we've created this really pretty world, and this is your chance to kind of sit back. And, I mean, I appreciate it on a certain level because I feel like, you know, games are so fast-paced usually that when, when you create a really beautiful world, it's kind of nice to set up a few instances a few where the player really has an opportunity to calm down and pay attention and absorb what you know what's going on in the environment but i think and i think wind waker overdid it even <laughs> even with the warps and everything and i think muramasa overdoes it to the point where i think actually somebody just kind of dropped the ball it's point. it's why well the, the the big issue with it is is it feels excessive from the get go. But when right. you are deep into the game and it's still happening and you've pretty much seen all the backgrounds that they've got to show you, it's it really wears you thin on, on your patience. I, I mean, early in the game, the game asks you to walk to Edo, which is Tokyo, and it literally feels like you have walked to Tokyo. Right. I mean, it's, it's about how long it takes, but. <laughs> But what's what's more jarring about it, though, is that at any given time, you can be ambushed in the middle of this. And these fights are so fast. Yes, they are. I mean, they're so smooth as well. It is It is one of the fastest brawlers I've ever played. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like I really even have control over what's going on sometimes. It's just going. There's a lot of teleporting and dashing. Yes. Yeah. And, and the battles may last as, as short as like eight seconds. Yeah. And you've killed five people. And... Then you're back to walking again. <laughs> I think I think that the dichotomy is, is makes that the whole walking part seem even more. <laughs> it lengthy. is certainly a dichotomy. It's just <laughs> off and on. It's it, so it really is like go and stop, go stop. <laughs> in, in Wind Waker, the long expanses weren't as bad because locomotion was passive. The wind moved you. In this game, you're you're still saying, okay, keep going. Keep walking. <laughs> exactly. You, you, you can't get up and make a sandwich. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when you go to where I was going, I took one path, because you can go into the screen sometimes. I took a path. I went into the screen and then followed that path to the end. And I came up on a boss, and I knew I was looking for a boss, because basically you're just going from one boss to the next. Yeah. I mean, the bosses are like the, are the game to me. It's, yeah, and they are. It's I mean, kind of like the most... Boss, boss rush in the history of games. <laughs> it's a very slow-paced boss rush. It's a rush. twenty-hour boss rush. <laughs> it's funny. It's, it reminds me of like of like one of those kind of old-school NES games where, you know, like back then there were so many action games that they had to kind of throw in something to add some sort of wrinkle to it. That's right. what it reminds me of. But but you know, it's thrown in there, but it really doesn't work very well. A little bit. I mean, I like the game, but. It's just just takes so long to do anything. It's like uh. yeah, I mean, if you, especially if it's just a case of you know you've only got so long to play it right. or to play any game, and you choose to play that, and sometimes you might get you're caught in a sequence where you don't feel like you did a whole lot. That can be kind of a bit of a turn off. Well, especially yeah. because. Even if you are making forward progress, the save system is so spartan that mm. you might go a while before you find your next save point. Yeah, I had a problem with that too. That's just the way it is. But James, why don't you tell us about a game that we've never talked about before on the show? Yeah, and Muramasa was bought to kind of relieve some of this game's difficulty, and it mm. in fact made it worse. But <laughs> the other game I've been playing is Disgaea DS, which was supposed to be my E3 airplane game. I, I fucked that boat up. 
<laughs> yeah, this this feels like normal series store to me. After yeah, I the, know. the interregnums into platforming and surgery or whatever. This is this is where <laughs> this is where return James to belongs. form. But you know, I didn't I didn't go in attempting to buy an RPG. I was going in for a game that was a cheap and b I haven't played before but had high reviews and that was the only game that really ticked off those two checkboxes. And this guy is a strategy RPG. Yeah, it, it, it's tactical RPG. So first off, it's a very weird game. Story-wise, it's very silly. I mean, it's, it's a weird game. It's difficult to say the least. There's a lot of penguins, right? Y- yes, the uh, the prinnies. Prin- dead yeah. souls that were reincarnated in hell as penguin servants, basically. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the game is weird. They're basically foot soldiers in battle they're, you know they're, they're your they're your worst units and, and to make up for that to give you an idea of how weird the game is you can pick them up and throw them at people and they blow up <laughs> i mean th- this is this is the kind of stuff you deal with in this game so early on the game you know it doesn't feel real difficult I- i'm moving through and there's there's some strategy but i'm not really all that worried about it you know there's different classes of characters but early on you really don't get to expose to that too much and I hit my first boss, and it's like hell on earth has literally just appeared coming from my DS. It's just like, what is this? I don't understand life anymore. <laughs> You're saying you got your ass kicked? I got my ass beat so bad that I still feel it to this day. Okay. But I got through that, and what I found is the game has a problem with trying to keep you at the right level. In that it makes no attempt to try to keep you at the right level. So it means there's a lot of grinding. Which is mm. not something I like in a strategy RPG, but you can actually go back and replay the battles for money and experience. But most battles can be beat later in like two minutes, so it's not a huge deal. Are they are they just set up exactly the same way when you replay them? Uh, except for the boss battles, because obviously you've killed the boss, so he's not going to be there. But that means you could basically play the same battle exactly the same way over and over again. Yes, you can. Oh, that's there's not even like a random enemy placement. I mean, yeah. Nope. So, see, the reason they do that, though, is the game's focus appears to be on developing your characters and their equipment. So what happens is, as a character kills enemies, they obviously they level up. But they also accumulate a stat you really can't see at all times called mana, which can be exchanged for things back in the hub world. And one of the things a character who accumulates mana can do is basically reset themselves back to level one and keep a certain percentage of their stats based on how much mana they paid. So you might have a level one character with like level 15 stats. Why would you want to do that? Well, because they level up very quickly at that at that stage and you can change their class. So they keep the skills they had in the previous class. Weird. But, okay. but then they level up really fast. So I actually, for one boss battle that was just destroying me for like a day straight, I basically reset my three best characters and they were able to go into the entire first set of levels and just win on their own with no assistance whatsoever. It's like one person beat the whole level. It's good. But so as a, <laughs> what, how the game forces strategy on you is that there's a bunch of different things at play, but one of the primary elements is that there's these grids on the ground and some spaces on the ground are colored. And if you, there are these items in the game, in game levels that you can throw onto these grids that affect every single space that's the same color as the one you've dropped it on. So it might be like, 20% more damage dealt to players who are attacking from this space, or some of them are really strange, like you're invincible if you're on a space this color. This sounds endlessly complicated. It is endlessly complicated. I mean, tactical RPGs, as a rule, are pretty complex games. Yeah. But 
I mean, you know, I've put hundreds of hours into Final Fantasy Tactics, and I even, you know, using the calculator job class sounds simpler than this. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but w- what happened in one level that I actually just beat before we started was every space was one color. I think the color was, like, red, except for one space in the top right corner, and there was one of the items that was already on all the red spaces, or was affecting all the red spaces, made everybody invincible. You and your enemies, because they were all on these spaces. Which means nobody could kill anyone. And the problem is, the enemy swarmed you right at the beginning, so you couldn't get to that little thing to remove it, destroy it, or take it off the spaces, so you could do damage. So what I had to do was, I had to walk up to them, and basically, the game turned into a puzzle game, because you can pick up and throw characters... I had to pick up and throw the characters in such a way as to maneuver my party over to the corner that had the item in it, set up a defensive perimeter, and then remove it so we could fight them one by one. <laughs> you had like a you had to solve a sliding block puzzle. I did. Characters. I had to solve a sliding block puzzle, so then it turned into an actual battle where I basically set up a, a kill space where they had to come at me one at a time because otherwise they would have, they would have overrun me. It's a good thing you had Professor Layton to train you for this. Professor Layton <laughs> guy <laughs> helped me beat a strategy RPG. Yeah. <laughs> I'm enjoying it, but it's so damn hard sometimes, and it just you spend so much time grinding and improving your stats that it sort of takes you out of the game a little bit, and it detracts from the game's weirdness and sense of humor because mm. it doesn't feel quite so funny when you're getting your ass beat by the same guy <laughs> 17 times and you have to watch the stupid story about how you calm all these bad dames before you fight him. It's just not funny the seventh time. See, this just sounds like, to me, I would have picked this out for you on Secret Santa, based yeah. on the complexity of it and the brut- the brutality of it. I mean, this is just yeah. like infinite space and yeah. it is, it, everything else you play. It's James Jones to a T. It's, t- yeah. it's, t- it's the 200-hour man, James Jones. It, it's not saying, I'm not saying I don't enjoy the game, because it's nice. Because I dropped, I mean, I've dropped quite a few hours into it in since I started on Saturday. I 200. Probably, <laughs> yeah. Well, I had the long weekend. Come on, geez. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, I'm enjoying it, but it, maybe sometimes it goes a little over the top. It's yeah. like, hey, what's this? Bam. <laughs> okay. Well, that's Disgaea DS, a game that I'm a little scared of now. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to wrap up new business. I've got two more PS3 games. I promise next week I will be reunited with my Wii. <laughs> this, is, this is the final circuit around the PS3 exclusive. Exactly. But I'm going to be a lot more positive this week because um, I spent the Memorial Day weekend, most of it, I was kind of bored most of the time, um, and I played through uh, all of Ratchet & Clank Future, A Crack in Time, which is... There's there's a lot of Ratchet and Clank games, but this is the one that came out in 2009, so it's the newest yeah. one. It's technically the third one they've done for PS3, and um, that's actually really my only complaint. Of, well, it's that's my first complaint about the game is that you can tell that this was an engine they built for the PS3 right off the bat, and it doesn't look that great now. And especially comparing it to the other game I played this week, which is God of War 3, and I've only <laughs> played like. 30 minutes of God of War 3. So, I mean, I can't say that much about it, but um, it's night and day. I mean, Ratchet & Clank looks antiquated compared to, actually, compared to most PS3 games I've played. It's surprising to me because, I, you know, I thought Insomniac had this reputation as being really masters of the system, and uh, the game is very good overall. I mean, I had a great time playing it. I beat it. I completed it. But I was just surprised. You know, I remember when the first Ratchet & Clank 
PS3 game came out, everybody was saying how they were really excited to play an HD platformer. It was kind of this implication that, you know, Mario Galaxy's great, but it's still not HD. And so everybody was excited to play a real high definition platformer on PS3. And there, you know, there's not really any good platformers on Xbox, not any 3D platformers that are worth playing. So I can understand why people, why that would be something that people would want to do. And I was kind of looking forward to seeing what that would be like. But I feel like Ratchet and Clank, I mean, a crack in time. And again, this, this game's only like a few months old. And I feel like it, it really looks like a game out of 2006 or 2007. It just looks kind of like a somewhat up-res PS2 game. It, it doesn't really seem to take advantage of the hardware. And I was just surprised because I feel like it's very cartoony. I mean, the whole aesthetic of the game, from graphics to music to voice acting to the writing, it's all very Saturday morning cartoon style. Mm-hmm. And you would think there's just an unlimited potential for what you could do with that art style on such a powerful system as the PS3. And yet it comes across looking a little bit jaggy and maybe not enough polygons in the characters. The the animations aren't nearly as smooth as I would have liked. I mean, I can't make a direct comparison to Galaxy 2 because um, I haven't played Galaxy 2 on my TV yet. Um, I've only played it on my friend's TV, which is a standard he had it cooked up with composite cables and it's, you know, it's not widescreen, et cetera. So it's not a fair comparison, but I have a feeling that when I go home and hook up galaxy two on my TV, it's going to look on the whole better. Yeah. That wouldn't surprise me. I don't know. The, to me, the art style and the tech aren't in sync with ratchet and clank. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's a weird uh, criticism to have, but I was expecting the graphics to look a lot better than they do. I, I, I was quite happy with them. I was quite happy with the presentation. It was very bright and everything. You Which know, one did you play, Greg? The same I remember one. that you had played the same one. Okay, I remember that you had played one of them, but I, there's so many of them. You know, there's like three or four for PS2, and now there's three for PS3, and there's a couple spin-offs for PSP. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I played this one, and I did like the look of it. I, just, I guess maybe just because one of the more colourful games I've got on the PS3. Oh, most yeah, of them no, it's, pretty, it's very colourful, for sure. Most of them are pretty bleak-looking, the ones that I've got, to be honest, but, uh, yeah. apart from the 3D dot game here. I mean, it's not the art style, necessarily. I'm... I don't love the character designs overall. No, neither do I. That's, that's what I said. But, you know, it does have its own style. I- anyway, in terms of the gameplay, I would say it's basically banjo Tui with good guns. <laughs> rather than just Kazooie getting burped. <laughs> well, rather than Kazooie shooting air. I mean, there's a, yeah. lot of air, there's a lot of shooting in banjo Tui, but it's terrible. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And, uh, you know, the the guns here, I thought I was going to hate most of them, honestly, because there's like 15 guns in the game there's or something like that. There's a lot of guns, that. yeah. I, th- I think that's like, uh, that is a sign of the sort of accumulation that's happened over oh. the life of the series, you know? Right, uh, right. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they add three or four per game, and they bring back some of the favorites. But, you know, a lot of them are things like you're holding some kind of alien creature that burps there's a yeah. disco gl- ball that you can shoot out that <laughs> makes all the enemies dance it's like real hokey stuff mm-hmm. and honestly i think the game's not that funny like it's clearly trying to be really comical but i don't think it's ever truly actually humorous but <laughs> at least not for me maybe if i was seven years old i I think it was pretty funny yeah it's not you know successful in the way a pixar movie would be successful no, being no. funny on multiple layers yeah but it's right. it's I, I just thought it was tolerable which is the yeah key. it's not it's not obnoxious some stuff aimed at 
that demographic is intolerable to right, you know, right, an older right. person. No, it, it is. You're right. It's tolerable. But the thing about the guns is that even though a lot of them are really corny, I think the game does a nice job of throwing enemies at you that are difficult enough that you actually kind of have to use most of the weapons. And 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 because of that, you over time as you use them more and more, and as you level them all up from your usage of them, you find that they do have different tactical advantages and that nice. sometimes you actually care. And sometimes, you know, when one of them run, cause they all have separate ammo, which I think is a bit extreme, but, mm-hmm. um, but when you run out of ammo for one of them and you have to switch to another, you end up having to play a little bit differently. And by the end of the game, I found that I actually liked most of the weapons and I actually cared to level them, level most of the weapons up as high as they could go. So, that was surprising to me because it's a kind of game where it feels like having 15 weapons that can all level up five times each. It just feels like by the end of the game, you're going to be so overpowered and they're going to throw these lame enemies at you that just kind of run at you. And instead they're put, they're putting out these big hulking robots that shoot rocket launchers at you and they it swarm you. can get quite you busy, and, can't it? I mean, there's the, can be- yeah. I mean, you will die. It is a respectably challenging game, and I was surprised by that. Just because of the tone of it, it looks like it's going to be super easy and kind of... I mean, it's weird. The game in general, Ratchet & Clank, it's like, it's mixing platforming, it's mixing some third-person shooting, it's mixing some kind of, like, space shooter stuff in between, which I think is neat. I think it's good in the doses that it that it's used for. You know, they don't overdo it. It's a nice way to break up the other stuff. There's some puzzle-solving stuff. Yeah, the, the Clank stuff, which, which I think is the big new addition for for this particular game. Yeah, they're pretty interesting puzzles. Um, it's not it's a small part of the game, but I think they're, they're done yeah. pretty well. So it's mixing all of these different genres, and it doesn't necessarily do any one of them extremely well, but they're all pretty good. And I, I was surprised with how well the mixture of it all kind of worked together. And it, it honestly has this the feel of, you know, one of these, like, third-person action movie license games. Like a Pixar, like The Incredibles or something like that, but better. Like, it, it's constructed like a sort of a generic licensed kids game, but it's all two or three notches above in terms of production value, in terms of the thought that went into the design, in terms of, you know, basically how long it's going to stick with me. But, I don't know, it was interesting. I mean, the main thing I would say is that the platforming is very low in the mix. Well, that's a good thing because it's it's the worst part of the game. The platforming needs, it needs work. The only areas where you get any kind of real intricate or challenging platforming is on the planetoids when you're going around the overworld of your spaceship, which are completely optional. And it's usually infuriating. I found. Well, I mean, some of them are some of them are frustrating. Some of them I enjoyed. You know, it's kind of hit or miss kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, the, the idea that it's somehow comparable to a galaxy game or it's a sort of rival or it just seems absurd to me. Oh it's yeah, just so it's, di- it's it's nothing alike. It's nothing like Galaxy, and it. I mean, honestly, it's not nearly as polished as a Nintendo game. Not. No. I think that's because they're doing so much different stuff to some extent. Yeah, it it has this kind of a loose feel to it, just in terms of how it's all put together, and that's fine. Again, it's fun. It does. Yeah. It's good at what it does. Not going to be one of my favorites, but. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I mean, I, you know, I got all the zonies. I'm sure you'll appreciate that, Greg. 
<laughs> I mean, in terms of, there's a lot of stuff to collect. I mean, it, it does feel yeah. like a rare game in that sense. Yeah, there's a lot of collecting. And I collected most of the stuff because I felt like most of it paid off. Like, it's one of those things where you collect it and you get something that you can use and it feels like it was worth your time to get, usually. So, I was pretty happy with that. Anyway, God of War 3, the only reason I put it in here is I just wanted to kind of compare the shocking difference in graphical quality. And, yeah, I don't have that much to say about God of War 3. I haven't played enough of it, but it is really impressive right, right off the bat. I mean, John, you said that it makes a good first impression, and I, I would yeah. second that. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, the intro is just, you're just like, holy shit. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Holy <laughs> shit. And then it, it's just holy shit after holy shit moment for the first part, yeah. for part of the first half hour that you played. Yeah, I mean, I beat Poseidon, and uh, yeah. the whole sequence is... <laughs> jaw-dropping. I mean, it's really amazing stuff. The camera work is remarkable. And, and not just in how it's all, you know, people talk about how the camera zooms in and out and you get the sense of scale. It is that, but the camera's moving all the time. Yeah. And even when it's relatively up close and it's it's more like the first two God of War games, you just have to go back and appreciate how good the camera has been for the life of this series. Mm-hmm. I mean, you never have any control whatsoever over the camera. It's It's too human. You know, it's Mario Galaxy, and yet it always works perfectly. Yep. The camera is always where it needs to be. It follows you around corners. It's just right, and almost no other game gets it as well as that. I mean, James, even James compare, complained about the camera in one level of Mario Galaxy 2. The cam- cameras are, are, I mean, it's next to impossible to get the camera right every time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a complete mess and too human. The camera is just a fucking train wreck. <laughs> That's not true. It's perfect at showing you things like statues. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible for showing you what you're doing. And in God of War 2, it's perfect at showing you what you're doing. It's just perfect. So that's my impression so far. Looking forward to playing more of that. Um, all right, that's going to be the end of new business. So now we'll take a break. When we come back, we have lots of your listener mail. Here's a quick look at the best original content at our website, now playing at NintendoWorldReport.com. First up, we have an interview with J.C. Smith, who is the director of marketing for the Pokemon Company. And our own Aaron Kaluska sits down with him and talks about Pokemon tournaments and the phenomenon in general. Yeah, people had monsters and they showed them to you. My Pokemans. <laughs> in reviews, Pedro takes a look at the WiiWare port of Capcom's Phoenix Wright Trials and Tribulations, uh, the DS uh, classic adventure game, and isn't as impressed as you might think he would be. Find out why in his review. You know, I, I think fact that they blew up a DS game to a TV probably doesn't help things. So you might remember about a year ago, uh, Pedro Hernandez did a blog post about his favorite Nintendo character, Donkey Kong. That was only part one, and uh, he's finally wrapped it up with part two, where he further espouses and, and elaborates on why he thinks Donkey Kong is the best Nintendo character, which is probably an unusual choice, so you might want to go <laughs> read about why that is. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Also on the feature front, Pedro presents his The Most Emotional Moments in Nintendo Gaming feature, in which he goes through multiple games that he feels were especially emotionally impacting from Nintendo's expansive library. Included in the list is a scene from Owen Don, Super Mario Galaxy, and Eternal Darkness. Oh, good choices. Alright, well that's going to wrap it up for Now Playing. So check out NintendoWorldReport.com to read about all this stuff, plus our pre-E3 coverage. 
What up, y'all? We back. And uh, just a programming note, we are not going to do our second half of E3 predictions this week. We're going to hold that off. We're going to talk about all of our Wii and Wii HD predictions uh, <laughs> ne- on next week's show because we want to have a little more time to prepare. And uh, also, I was afraid that if we did it this week, we'd, do, we'd end up falling into the trap of doing even more predictions next week. So we'd yes. have like three straight weeks. That's too much. So we're going to take a little break from the predictions, and next week we will finish those up, and then that'll be just a couple – That'll that episode will come out just a couple days before – the Nintendo press conference where all of our dreams will be crushed. So <laughs> it'll be right at one, right after the other. It's going to be, it's going to be wall to wall. We party. That's all we're going right. to get. They're going to be hiding their mode on stage. And that's all we're going to have for an hour and a half. We party November 23rd. <laughs> look, at, look forward to that. <laughs> $80. That seems like a lot, but that's that's a dollar per minigame. More smiles on more faces. It comes with a white plastic party hat. <laughs> that you attach to the Wii. Okay, so uh, we are going to do a whole big round of your listener mail right here. Of course, the address, I'll repeat it later, but the address is rfn at nintendoworldreport.com. You can write to us about anything as this selection will prove. And uh, John has the first letter from Slade. All right, Slade. Slade, you should include where you're at. We need your location. That would be nice. So John can find you. Sure, James. (laughs) Slade writes, you've mentioned Castlevania a lot and it's gotten me interested in the series. Which game would you recommend as a starting point for someone who has never played a game in the series? Judgment. Castlevania 64. (laughs) Oh, we got that out of the way. (laughs) The judgment gag. So... James, you're not really a Castlevania fan, are you? Not really, but <laughs> I, I'm definitely not a Castlevania Judgment fan. Well, no one, <laughs> even Igarashi doesn't like Judgment. Yeah. Um, but I will say, and I know you're joking, John, but I think Castlevania 64 gets a bad rap, and it's not it's not the best game to start with. Mm-hmm. But I do think <laughs> fans of the series should play it at some point just to see what it's all about. And especially, you, you can skip the original version, but they basically remade it a few yeah. years later as Legacy of Darkness and that is actually a decent game. Yeah, I played the first one. I didn't I didn't get around to play Legacy of Darkness. So. They kind of fixed a lot of things that were broken about the about the original <laughs> version and and I think most or all of the content from Castlevania 64 is in Legacy of Darkness. So it's a also... patch, but a patch you had to pay full price for. <laughs> but but they also added a whole new character. Actually, I think they added two new characters, and it's basically a whole new story mode with different levels and different bosses and everything, and they fixed a lot of the problems. And I think you can go back and play as the other characters that were in the original. So, it's the ultimate version of it. It's the Game of the Year edition. (laughs) (laughs) The non-game of the year. Except Castlevania 64 was no one's Game of the Year. And the one thing that it actually has to recommend it is the soundtrack is really good. Yeah, most 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 Castlevania soundtracks have something to commend about them. Pretty much all 60-bit Konami soundtracks I thought were awesome, like Axley or Gradius or anything. I mean, pretty, they, pretty they, sure. they have a they have a sound that was distinctly theirs at that particular time period. Yeah, although there's also great range among those. That's what they all mentioned about Lunar Nights, though, didn't actually. It's got a really cool kind of jazzy soundtrack. A little bit anime at times. Like the rest of the game, uh, <laughs> fittingly, yeah. This, this, this one of the characters, like this dark emo kid or whatever. But when he dies, he just goes, "Dang it!" <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler. 
rubbish. But looking at Castlevania, I mean, the, the 3D games, you know, no one on the PS2 or the N64, no one's, no one's too hot about those. Uh, I don't know how Lords of Shadow or whatever's going to turn out. Oh, yeah. But that's, I mean, that's that's a Castlevania game really in name only. In name only, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's being made in Spain. I mean, come Outside on. Outside of the 3D stuff, there's two very different kinds of Castlevania game. I mean, uh, you know, you've got the old school action Castlevania game, which is a very mm-hmm. deliberate action platform and where the jumping's kind of stodgy and And that would be that would be like Super Castlevania and back, right? Yeah, yeah. you've got yeah, Castle and, and Rondo Blood as well. And yeah, okay. And then of course you've got the so called Metroidvania games, which is Symphony of Night on and of course, there have been six on Nintendo portables, uh, three on GBA, three on DS. So there's quite a few to choose from. So it's difficult to know which one, uh, which side Slade is, is more interested in. Well, I could tell you which one's more accessible, and that's the, the, yes. the Metroidvania half. The Metroidvania of the half is definitely the more accessible. And I mean, I, th- I think Symphony of the Night is probably the best place to start, if you, uh, yeah. to be honest, because I, mean, I think that's pretty accessible game yeah. in itself and it is obviously where the formula itself was established for that kind of game so it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of makes sense but if you don't have access to that either through the PSN or literally a PS1 or the Dracula X Chronicles on PSP or XBLA as well so I mean it's pretty available <laughs> or if, any of these hundreds of ways you can play it if you've got none of those available to you and you wanted to get one of the ones that's on the Nintendo Portable I'd probably go Dawn of Sorrow because I imagine that's easier to find than Aria at this point. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it is, but I think Aria's better. I would, Aria I might would... be better, but they're close. I mean, if we're just if you're going with an ideal, you'd say Aria, right? Yeah, Aria is is the one I would say. Obviously, Dawn's a little bit prettier. The soundtrack's definitely richer because of the improved quality of the uh, DS sound hardware. But they're 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 close, and it may be that if you can't find. Aria, then Dawn's a good substitute. Now, Ecclesia, the most recent one, is an excellent game, but it's very difficult and might not be the best place to start with this sort of thing. Mm. And then sort of flipping that back around to the old school Castlevanias, which are generally quite difficult, I think if you're going to start with one, the one to start with is probably Super Castlevania 4. Yes. Because that that is the easiest of them, I, I would say. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's easier it's than Rondo. Than Castlevania Three. Uh, Castlevania Three is rock solid. I think. Yeah. yeah it is. I that's that's that what recently. I would. That's my pick. I mean, for like. I mean, that would be my pick for for the one to play. But that's again, it's not the easiest one. I, I like Castlevania Three a hell of a lot. But the thing is, it's got the super stodgy jumping. You know, it's got all that kind of eight bit kind of weirdness. Whereas Castlevania Four is still true to that, but you have got more control over your jump, and you've got the multi directional whip. And yeah. you can like swing from stuff using the whip. Like, it's just a bit more varied, a bit more easy, mm-hmm. more modern feeling. The, the graphics and the sound. I mean, especially the soundtrack of these utterly fantastic. To clarify, three is Dracula's Curse, right? Yeah, yep, right. yeah, for the yes. And yeah, so yeah. I think four. If you're looking for the the action side, I would go with four over Rondo or three because it's easier and because I, I like agree. the soundtrack better. Of of all of the Castlevania games I've played, four is my favorite. 
It's probably mine too. I, I would have to say. I mean, it's just I pro- mainly because of the time that I played it. You know, in that you know, I was like seven years old, and it just made this huge impression on me. But it is still. Yeah. Who's that impression? You go, fuck you, game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, but anyway, I played the first Castlevania when I was five years oh, old. God. Oh, I was already very much baptized in the ways of. Pain. No, I, I mean, actually, Greg, <laughs> I did too. I mean, I would have played it a couple years before you did, but when I was five or six, I played the original Castlevania, and I thought it was really cool, even though I could barely beat the first boss. So that's the pairing, I would say. If you want old-school Castlevania, download Super Castlevania 4 for the Virtual Console. If you want modern, get Symphony of the Night somehow, or, failing that, one of the Sorrow games, whatever you can get your hands on. I agree totally. Moving on. Uh, Kisaki Project writes... James mentioned he played Fragile Dreams a few weeks ago. I also recently purchased this game and enjoyed it greatly. Everything was so well constructed, even the archaic gameplay elements, to create the sense of isolation, particularly with Seto trying to have normal relationships and interactions with inherently non-human characters. The gripping sense of isolation and loneliness is one of the best conveying of emotions I've ever experienced in a game. I was wondering if James felt the same way about the ending as I did. The whole game makes you feel lonely, then they explain why you're the last person and have this hokey sci-fi villain, and it kind of detracted from the experience for me. I understand what they were trying to convey with this villain, but I felt it kind of killed the experience. Did you feel the same way, James? Well, to be clear, the, the I mentioned that the game takes... I mentioned this when we were discussing it, and I mentioned it in the review, in that the last third of the game sort of goes sideways... You did. And that's not exactly what he's talking about here, but it it is the reason that the whole sets change is a function of that story decision. Mm. So I think that greatly influenced people's perception of that particular twist in the story, because it it makes this sudden shift in appearance of the game in order to facilitate the twist that comes later. And that I think not only did it take away the experience that was making the game really really something to behold. But then the payoff for that was this kind of weird, bizarro bullshit twist. (laughs) I think think if it had just been the twist, people would have palated it better. Um, Mm. I I, I knew there was a story twist coming that had been spoiled for me. I didn't know exactly what it was, but I'd kind of put it together in my head. So I I wasn't quite as just like, what the fuck is this? As some people apparently were when they got there. (laughs) I'm not thrilled with... With that particular, and this is gonna this this is gonna sound painful for anybody who hasn't played the game, and I really don't want to go into too many spoilers about it. Right, please don't. But I understand why they did what they did. They had to account for why everybody but Seto and this man who adopted him died. Well, and and the girl. I mean, there are three people that we know of that are alive, and the question is, why did these three survive? Mm-hmm. And to do that, they would have to go with some kind of sci-fi element to it because there's really no other explanation for it. Sure, I mean, it's just in terms of how explicit and you know how yeah, I mean, they have to set all this stuff out very neatly. I mean, yeah, I, I tend does... to find that to be. I, I know what you mean. You want some sort of payoff. You want resolution. You know, it doesn't just feel like a bunch of red herrings. But on the other hand, there's nothing worse than when when they sort of just get the blackboard and the pointer out and say, "No, let me explain." What's you mean you mean like an M Night Shyamalan movie, or, or like a or like a Martin Scorsese movie. 
if you've seen Shutter Island. So it, it does sound a bit like you, you agree with the sentiment expressed in the email from the point of view that you understand why they did what they did, but it is still somewhat incongruous with the rest of the experience. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it really does strike like a bolt from the blue and how sci-fi-ish it is. I mean, the best kinds of twists are always the ones that are simultaneously surprising and yet consistent in a way. You know, Certainly in the games arena... Yeah, Silent Hill, Shattered Memories is probably one of the more effective examples of that I've played recently. Where I mean, it is similar to what you're talking about in uh, Fragile Dreams, where you spend the whole game waiting for the explanation, the twist or whatever. And yet, even with that sort of burden, it pulls it off. And that's, that's difficult. Right. I think in this game, you probably aren't quite as prepped for the twist, because the whole game really is is sort of a testament to human emotion. I mean, Seto, not only is he alone, but he is so alone that he begins to identify with non-people. That part sounds interesting. I mean, it, it's a game It's a game where you encounter a bunch of ghosts. I mean, it's already mm-hmm. pretty sci-fi-ish. I mean... Sure. <laughs> All right, well, I think we've explored this to the limits of a non-spoiler edition. Yeah, it's it's hard. Especially considering you're the only one of us who's played it. <laughs> yeah, it would be really helpful if somebody else had played this damn game. <laughs> I, I want to. Because you have Gamefly, though, so you, you can get I it. can, yeah, can eventually. Get with I, pl- I plan to. I, I disagree with, with the archaic gameplay elements being necessary to convey those emotions, though. <laughs> because because they just they just irritated me more than anything, but I I do I do agree that's what they were going for. I just don't feel like it was a good decision. Okay, well James, you have the next letter. Yes. So Zoltan from Illinois writes: Whenever I'm browsing forums or reading blogs, the topic of Guitar Hero versus Rock Band comes up, and it almost always boils down to the business side of everything. Activision is a big company, so Guitar Hero is bad. While Harmonix is a more ind- is more independent, so Rock Band is good. Because of all this negativity on the Guitar Hero franchise, I found my excitement on the next game dwindling simply because it seems that no one wants it to exist after all the business decisions Activision has made. Does knowing too much or too little of the developers make you dislike a game more? And do you ever wish you could go back to the times where you could purchase a game and it'd be completely fresh on everything that's in it? Well, these are really interesting questions, but before we get into that, I just want to say on the whole... Guitar Hero versus Rock Band debate. It's such a false dichotomy there. Because <laughs> it's freaking EA and MTV. Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Rock Band is published Viacom? by MTV. These mom and pop operations. Yeah. Viacom <laughs> and Electronic Arts. Can you yeah. come up with two bigger conglomerates to be You're not exactly this? feeding starving artists by purchasing Rock Band songs. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think it's more that people feel like there was such a bad break between Harmonix and Activision. But, I mean, Harmonix really can't bitch that much because without Activision, they probably would have gone bankrupt. Also, I think it stems a lot from the songs that are put into Rock Band versus the songs that are put into Guitar Hero. I think you get a lot of you get a lot of more kind of independent bands getting put into Rock Band. It's true. I, I, I actually tend to like the soundtracks in Guitar Hero more. Yeah. Rock Band is, and whether or not they, they, they say this publicly, is part of MTV's apparatus i mean oh yeah the games they the songs they put into it are artists that a they feel like are probably going to be bigger in in the near future and sort of drive their market because their market is basically driven on not what people have already listened to to death but what is coming up and it's just kind of hit yeah a lot of fallout boy and shit yeah versus guitar hero which is kind of like we're going to give you the music that you always wanted to play yeah rock band has also done stuff like the rock band network which kind of caters to independent bands. Right. 
which people love. I think Rock Band just has more street cred overall. It's, uh, as funny as that sounds. And it goes yeah. beyond these two. It goes beyond these two games to some extent because Activision continually does things that don't endear the, no. the company to the wider sort of gaming enthusiast population. That it just becomes an easy sort of whipping boy. Yeah, Blizzard Activision's become kind of a pariah amongst people who visit gaming forums. I mean, obviously, decisions like, well, we're going to put out StarCraft Two, but it's going to be sixty dollars, and Battlenet will be pay to play, and it's only going to have one of the three races in the first game. Mm-hmm. People go like, what? What the hell is this? Oh, and there's no land play. And people get really upset because why are you doing this except to make a lot of money? And yeah. Yeah. And that's that's what their job is. Their job is to make money. And they know you'll pay it. Well, Harmonics has gone out of their way to kind of ingratiate themselves to their community. I think they're, yeah. more, they're more community focused than Activision well, by you, a long you shot. You saw that at PAX. I mean, they set up that whole big room, the bar. Yeah. Well, they're also from Boston. They're also based in Boston, so it's easy oh, for them to they? do okay. that. Oh, are they? Okay. But that's also a marketing strategy. I mean, it's yeah. not charity. It's just the different styles of marketing. Right. And, that, and, the and that's fine, approaches. but, you know, I, I think you can make the argument that, at least for a while, Guitar Hero was being managed a lot worse than Rock Band. Mm-hmm. And so I can understand people getting upset at the kinds of games that Activision was... Guitar Hero Aerosmith Edition. Van Halen? Yeah, but... Van, Van Halen, a game so bad we had to give it away. Yeah, Van, Guitar Hero Van Halen is a train wreck. But, <laughs> you know, Rock Band is not really that much better. I no, mean, not now. Got, you've got Lego Rock Band, you've got all these ACDC packs and shit like that, country packs. And, yeah, you can import those, but it's still kind of messy. I mean, they've still... Let me put it this way. Harmonics and MTV and EA are just as guilty for flooding that genre as Activision, they've released almost as many Rock Band games as there are Guitar Heroes. Yep. I mean, look at the numbers. They're not that much different. So both parties are to blame. It was a very unfortunate arms race. And you can't blame one over the other. You can't. There, I mean, there is still Green Day Rock Band coming out next month. Yes. Which is ridiculous. Even if you like Green Day, that shit be ridiculous. Yo. <laughs> that yeah, shit be ridiculous. That's the thing, though. The thing is, though, you do not see stuff like Beatles Rock Band coming from Activision. Well, no. Something with with that kind of, I guess you could call it craft. But John, there was it. a bidding war for that that particular brand, if I recall correctly. So, I sure. mean, oh yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, Activ- I'm sure Activision tried to get the Beatles, and they they weren't willing to pay as much. But in the end. It probably wasn't a great business decision. It didn't sell that well. No. No, but I mean, a small company like like Harmonix and EA and MTV, how did they come up with the money? For <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is, I think a lot of people feel continually connected with Rock Band because of the way that they release songs much, much more regularly than Guitar Hero, and they did that first also. So... You know, I get why people like Mike Sklins are totally obsessed with Rock Band because there's always something new coming out, and and that's a, that's a very strong incentive to pay attention to it and to become loyal to it. And and I I mean I can even say be, having been six weeks away from my Rock Band, when I get back to Colorado, that one of the first things I'm going to do is jump in there and download the Humphreys McGee song that they added to it, and probably a couple others as well. I mean that's it's exciting, and that again that's Rock Band too. It came out in 2008. So I understand the appeal of that. At the same time, I think, you know, even Harmonix has dropped the ball a few thi- on a few things with DLC. I mean, Beatles Rock Band, they released three great albums as downloadable content, but then they stopped Cold Turkey, and there's absolutely no word on bringing out Revolver, which is one of the ten greatest albums of all time by any band. And that game is just, it's probably never happening. 
they've probably stopped supporting that game. I mean, and you you brought this up earlier, and uh, just just want to bring raise it up again, and totally it like a ten on the incomprehensible scale. Lego Rock Band, yeah, <laughs> like like yeah. It, that is literally the most incomprehensible thing I saw last year. D three. Like to yeah. this day, I still can't wrap my head around the fact they had a stage made up of fake Legos where people well, were playing and a, rock. Band. And a lot of the rock band, you know, crazies will will just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, "Whatever, I don't have to buy it." But things like Lego Rock Band are exactly what ruined the Guitar Hero brand. Yes, it's it's just Band Hero. Yeah, it's just the the family friendly version. Yeah, but they decided to put a Lego wrapper on it rather than a Taylor Swift wrapper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although if if Van Halen edition came with your fake long hair blonde wig, I'd be much better with it. But it doesn't. <laughs> I know I so would it be. can't. Well, we've talked plenty about those games. We well, we have the other part of the question though. Right, right, right. As far as and 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 you know, I've heard a lot of this from. Especially from movie critics. Um, I listen to a, another podcast called Film Spotting. I think they've addressed this at some point where it's like, is there a danger of, you know, as you learn more about the history of a medium, as you get more into the artsy side of it, maybe as you broaden your understanding of how they're made and who makes them and, you know, what is, what are the, all the interconnections and everything? Does that reduce your ability to simply enjoy it on the, on face value, the way that you used to, the way that you did when you decided to get more involved in it? And I think you can apply that to books or games or anything else. Yeah. So it's a very fair question. As you, and, and I, you know, we've all reviewed games and been involved with this long enough. So I think we probably all have our own personal takes on it. But as you learn more about how games are made and how they're put together and wh- where they fit within the whole spectrum of video gaming over the past few decades, does that make it harder for you to enjoy them on a fundamental level? Mm, I, th- I mean, this is something of a shift, I think, that goes on, you know, in terms of that more basic enjoyment finding something fresh perhaps there's a there's a fading of that over time you know whether you be formally criticizing games in reviews or whatever or just as you play more and more of them right you know you 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 begin to see them in a richer context of what has been done before and and i think because they're less fresh you don't have that sort of more visceral sudden sensation of of being you know uh, overwhelmed by it but on the other hand there's a kind of slightly more sort of intellectual in, uh, appreciation of things in terms of what they are taking from other games in the past or how they are perhaps you know reinventing something or subverting a convention here or references to things in the past. you know you can take a different kind of appreciation for games when you have that richer context that you build up over time <laughs> you mean darksiders well, yeah, I did. I must admit, Darksiders wouldn't it would have been less fun for me being able to laugh at how derivative it was, but simultaneously more fun because you know, I wouldn't have played Ocarina of Time and seen it all before. <laughs> that illustrates the trade-off there. I've always really vehemently disagreed with the uh, adage that ignorance is bliss. I think that there's nothing to be lost from learning more about something you love and understanding it on a deeper level. I, I mean, I think anyone who plays Mario Galaxy or Galaxy 2 and thinks about it on such a sophisticated, uh, you know, educated level that they can't see that it's fun has just lost their critical thinking ability. 
And all perspective as well. Yeah, and all perspective. It's not like as you learn more about it, you become more critical of it and you lose your ability to enjoy it. I find that my enjoyment of anything is always enriched by learning more about it. Now, I may find that I like different things. So maybe my tolerance for certain things changes over time. But I've always found, and this is easy for me to put in context of film, because in the past few years I've been getting a lot deeper into the history of film and watching a lot of classic movies and watching more foreign movies and independent movies, etc. And that might take away from my ability to go watch something like Iron Man 2 and just be like, (laughs) but it's opened up such a wealth of other things that I can enjoy in different ways. And you know what? I can still go and enjoy Iron Man 2, even if it's idiotic. There's still things about it that I like. So, no. No, it doesn't take away from my enjoyment at all. So, for me, what I can run into problems with is if, one, I see something in a game that's flawed, that's been flawed in other games like it, that it's clearly stealing from, yeah. Or in or in a case it's a sequel, and I think to myself, there's really no excuse that this should still be broken. And and what will happen is I'll start to analyze the game in my head, and that can take me out of the fun and turn me more into almost an observer of myself playing the game. Yeah, I I've been there, and I know what you're talking about. But I used to have this a lot when I was reviewing. There would I'd be playing a game. It'd be a game that I liked, that I wanted to play anyway, but that I also happened to be reviewing. And sometimes I would have a stray thought, and I would think, did I think that because I'm reviewing it, or would I have thought that even if I was just playing it? Right. And I would get I would get self-conscious about it, you know? I mean, this is a weird... Not that many people write game reviews, so no. it's not something you hear about that much. But you go through this weird thought process and this internal struggle about how do I play the game and enjoy it the way it's meant to be played while also being analytical and recording my thoughts and... You know, over time, I just felt that it's okay to be really in your head when you're playing a game for review, as long as every now and then you step out of it and just kind of look at it and and be like, how would I feel about this if I wasn't doing a review? And see, the thing is, I found that that bleeds into other games. So so it it bled into uh, Trauma Team, which, to my knowledge, I'm not reviewing. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I, I sat there for a little bit, I'm like, why did they make that decision? And I sit, I sat there, and I kind of processed it in my head for a while. But I mean, this—that's—that's that's a function of me personally. That's kind of my my general. Yeah, process I, I, said, I think there's an inclination towards that as you've been exposed to just more things as you get yeah. older. Well, and for personally, that's just something I tended to do anyway. I mean, I, I always tend to get into my head. It's kind of like, well, what about this? Like, why did they choose to do this than that? And then, and then for a while, I'm like, oh God, I was still playing the game. What happened? <laughs> yeah, that's fine as long as you don't become cynical. And sometimes I have to tell myself, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, you know, I've I've gone through shades of it as well. And you know, sometimes I have to t- just tell myself, look, I'm playing a video game; it should be fun. Now, if it's not fun, then I'm not going to pretend that it is. But um, don't lose your ability to enjoy things ever yeah. in your life because <laughs> that's that's when you become a very unhappy person. You know, you will never enjoy things on the sort of pure level as, as you did when you was a kid. Uh, I disagree because the games I got as a kid were shit. So. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Fester's fucking quest. 
because there's an acceptance of the the biggest change that happens to people is you are intrinsically accepting of things when you're younger and then as you get older you tend to be a lot more questioning so it doesn't matter whether it's you know the illusion of special effects in films or whether it's you know like rationalizing certain gameplay mechanics in games whatever it would be you as a child you just accept those things you don't you don't say why did they do it like they did it in this game or this film or this you know and, and that the point is that's not really related to a point in time you know, for everyone that's that's just a point in your life and you're never going to get that back <laughs> right yeah i mean that's the thing like it's the first time you'll come across all of this stuff so because you've never seen any of it before you'll be impressed by most of everything not not saying that, that crappy games still aren't crappy games but no because they are crappy games are crappy games and... look yeah, i mean kids know when they don't like something yeah. yeah. Like I said there's just that intrinsic sort of acceptance of things. Yeah, you know, I mean say so for instance if I watched if I watched your Jurassic Park as a kid. Yeah. I'm not really think, looking at those dinosaurs thinking how did they do it or this I just think, Oh, that's amazing. Whereas yeah. if I watch a CG heavy movie now, I'm thinking like, Okay, so that there yeah, they probably did this with blue screen and then that you know yep. oh, that's a physical element, that's not a physical element, that's animatronic, that's CG. You you just do. You just can't help it. You, you, you perform you perform visual surgery on a game like, on a movie like Avatar. That's just the, this something that happens to you, you can't really avoid that. But mm-hmm. another element that I perceive in this question especially because it's talking about you know the kind of the 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 noise that goes on outside of the game involved the whole activision harmonics pissing match or whatever is you know just not so much about you experiencing the game but the context in terms of this outside noise or the hype or the marketing or seeing lots of media or you know another thing that would happen and this isn't necessarily related to your age but as kids you know the, all of us we didn't have online you may or may not have got magazines or whatever so you just get a game and it was like bang there it is you don't really know much about it here it is and now you could still consume games that way if you don't you know if you're not going to sites like ours that's God how forbid. my friends consume games but I mean, they don't read but the only times they ever read anything is if i wrote it and i point out guys i think this is kind of stupid you might want to read it yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and how many people bought carnival games based on the box art? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Millions. Or just a concept. Millions. Exactly. So that is something that's not about your age or whatever. I mean, that's just about how into the kind of the whole subculture. Just how informed are you? I mean, I will say my policy is if there's something I know I want, I will avoid that some some of the surrounding stuff deliberately. Yeah, a lot of movie aficionados won't watch trailers. We'll get yeah. up and leave during the trailers because. They don't. They don't want it spoiled to some extent, but even not in a plot sense, but just in a visual sense on the most basic levels. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I I do just by osmosis, I end up absorbing a lot of stuff about games well, and films that I might not choose. Yeah, to and do. it's so easy for us too because we have access to it all, right? I mean, like I yeah. have to, I have to purposely just. I really don't watch trailers typically, especially like in-game footage, anything like that, or like kind of like walkthroughs of areas of games. A lot of the time, like I'm quite happy to see stuff, uh, an early thing that just says, okay, this is what the game is. Yeah. So I've mm-hmm. got the concept. But in terms of after that, like the sort of more gratuitous sort of blowout of like, okay, now here's this part, and now here's this part of the multiplayer, and now here's this weapon being used. No, yeah, no, I'm right. Definitely not. Case in point, I'm not going to want to see any new gameplay trailers of Metroid Other M in July. Yeah. Yeah, when it's when it's launching at the end of August or whatever. Right. right. I will be pretty satisfied with 
with what that game's going to be. I'll have played it by then for Yeah, one I was thinking, you'll, you'll have played it at D3, I'd assume. Yeah. But, I mean, that, of course, we've got, uh, then there's sort of beyond the trailers and the media and, and the hype and reading, like, impressions or whatever, you've got another aspect, which is, like, so this sort of political, you know, intrigue kind of element to, like, <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. warring companies. Obviously, yeah, now oh, the yeah. classic thing is, is, is Infinity Ward, Activision, you know, like, people are going to be looking at Black Ops through the lens of, like, okay... Treyarch's basically the go-to team for Call of Duty now, so are <laughs> yeah. they trying to, uh, you know, allay people's fears that of what's happened to Infinity War with the game design and casting all these like aspersions and looking through all these prisms and that does seem like a hell of a lot of noise yeah. to be dealing with. It <laughs> is, especially for reviewers. And yeah. we used to, you know, I used to when I was a reviews editor for a lot, a lot of years. Um, I used to deal with this a lot, where we'd get writers. Uh, writing their game reviews, and they'd spend half the review talking about the developer and all the things that that happened and how the game got started and restarted and shifted around among publishers, and they had to switch out engines. And then, you know, you've also got the reviewers who like to talk to the developer, like tell them what they did wrong and what they <laughs> did right. Everything. And I, and, I, and I always just say, look, I mean, you're reviewing the game not the story behind the game. I yeah. mean, that's maybe, that's intrigue, and maybe that's a separate feature or whatever. Yeah. And, it, I mean, the context is important for setting up your expectations, but you can't base your review on what you know about the about how the game was made or something like, or what the developer told you in person or whatever, because ultimately the game has a stand on its own merits. And when you write yeah. a review, and this goes for everybody listening at home, even if you're not writing a review, but when you're playing the game and formulating your opinion of it and whether you like it or not, leave all that shit aside. I mean, it really doesn't matter in the end. You've got the game, you paid your money for it, do you like it or not? Why? Well, I also think that that comes, that's kind of part and parcel of, of game journalism sort of uh, wanting to do quote unquote real stories, right? Right. <laughs> Be real journalists and something like, like Infinity Ward is actually <laughs> a, yeah, it's a real business story, right? So it's like yeah. really blown up by the video game media. It's a business media. and a human interest story at the same time. And that has its place. Uh, people want to know about it. That's Absolutely. That's interesting, but uh, that's fine. But uh, as Johnny says, at the end of the day, when you're evaluating the experience itself, that right. is noise. Look, Call of Duty Black Ops could be the best first-person shooter ever made. And if it is, I hope people say so, without a bunch of bullshit about who made it. It's really good for something not made by Infinity Ward. I can, exactly. I can just see that right now. That's such... Uh, I hate that stuff. I really do. Yeah. I really well, hate and, that and stuff. That, that's a, that's a worse case, though, because there was already a sort of dichotomy set up between the Treyarch games and the Infinity Ward games. Yeah. And, yeah. and and one was always held above the other because... But now it's going to be like, well, the one has to make up for the departure of the other. Right. And and it's not just that. It's like it was the big brother and the little brother, and the big brother just went to college. And of course, <laughs> yeah. one, and once, <laughs> once Reese Bourne actually starts making stuff... Yeah, then, then it's even worse because... It's going to get really... It could get really silly. So. Let's yeah. say there's still, there's still any cynicism out there left behind. You know if... if EA is their publisher. EA might not be totally opposed to preying on that cynicism. Yeah, well, I mean, Respawn is going to be the next uh, the next Ion Storm. Not that they'll turn out the same <laughs> no, way. they're not. But, it, but you know what I mean, though? It's going to be like the same, like, oh, my God, the game that they're going to make. Just wait. Now that the, that the shackles are off, the next game they're going to, they're going to make is going to be so amazing. Like, I'm sure... And what if it sucks? 
Exactly. The distinction between this kind of, you know, the, like I said, this kind of inside baseball kind of stuff is that, again, this this isn't really something about how old you are as a person because you didn't have this level of it in the 80s or whatever because there wasn't the media surrounding it. I mean, it's yeah. unique to now and it's probably only going to explode more and more as, as, the, as the gaming industry grows over the coming decades or whatever. So, I mean, I guess in that sense, you go back to the question, you could say, oh, you wouldn't mind going back to the time of whatever. But at the same time, I don't think it's too hard to tune that out at the end. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think that is possible to kind of set it aside compartmentalize here's here's one different element though regarding the companies in the background that's not political intrigue but sometimes i i struggle to not necessarily to enjoy the game but to even get up for a game that looks good when i know that developer has a bad track record like i can't i can't judge that game on its own because sonic team is making it yeah and i say i say ooh, really i mean because remember the reference he's talking about here are things like message boards and blogs and things. I think I mean, that can certainly cause a, a bad taste in people's mouth before they even get hands on it. Yeah, all, yeah, all I'm saying, James, is it's okay to have expectations as long as you're open to the possibility of those expectations being shattered. Because they will be eventually. Well, the Sonic Team's ones might not be, but... So, the final question is from RW, and he writes, What do you guys think are the major differences between Yamauchi's leadership at Nintendo and Iwata's? Personally, I feel some doors open with Iwata with respects to online connectivity, true blue ocean ethos with game design and controllers. But at the same time, on Iwata's watch, there has been a lack of focus on console horsepower, which was something Nintendo was pretty good about being competitive with back in the days of Super NES, N64, GBA, and GameCube. So what are your thoughts on the comparison between those two presidents of Nintendo. I mean, obviously, the fundamental difference between them is the fact that Iwata has a background in game design. Yes. Uh, and, 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 yeah, and I'm yeah. sure that you know informs a lot of uh, the the perspective of the decision making in a very different way than would have been the case when Yamuchi was was running things. I mean, I think that Miyamoto gave an interview recently where he was you talking about his relationship with Yamuchi in the past. Um, about you know, presenting game ideas, now he would get furious when they sold poorly. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. that process is a lot easier and more consensual, um, and probably gets more constructive feedback from Iwata than would have been the case. Yeah, because he's, he's not as much of a like raw Japanese businessman. Go off and make your games and make me money. That's exactly how Yamauchi was. Like he didn't even play video games. No, they, they would come in and. The, I mean, and I'm, this is from Game Over, David Chef's book, but supposedly the way he managed the company is he would have developers make the game up to a certain point, bring it in, and play it for him, and then he would say yes or no. Yeah. <laughs> and basically, that's it. Like, if he said no, drop it, move on. And ha- this guy, what does he know about video games? I mean, <laughs> you would presumably you jack wonder. shit. How does he even know what's going to sell, what's good? I think his business management style, and there are people out there who do this, is he finds people whom he believes in. In this case, Mm -hmm. it would have been someone like Miyamoto. Mm -hmm. And and that person becomes essentially like his standard upon which if if he believes this is going to work, then he probably knows what he's talking about. I don't need to be involved in the fine fine details of what's going on. Well, the thing is too, though, like on the one hand also, I mean, because he never played the games, you have to wonder if he would be the only one that wouldn't have some sort of warped perspective. Like, especially nowadays where it's like, 
oh my god, but look at this this bloom that I can put in, and look at this lighting that I'm putting in, and all. Yeah, you're not going to get lost in the the minutiae. I mean, I suppose that is a, a fair point, I suppose. But I mean, if you go back to Yamuchi, you know, what sort of how deferential he was to Miyamoto. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things is the legend of Yoshi's Island. The idea that Yamuchi and the top level boys wanted it to be pre-rendered graphics because that had done so well and in Donkey Kong Country and yet Miyamoto was successful in resisting that. I mean that suggests that he did defer to Miyamoto a lot. Yeah. I'm sure he did. That's yeah, not he uncommon would amongst, to, like, amongst CEOs to say, okay, I have a guy who's really good at what he does, and in the end, I'll trust his judgment on this. And it's the skill isn't necessarily being able to make decisions yourself, but being able to identify the people who know what the hell they're talking about. But with with Iwata, the, the relationship's a little different because, of course, the, 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 there wouldn't necessarily wouldn't have to be such deference in matters of game design because Iwata is is versed in it himself. However, he's not. There's a different on the more personal side. He's not Mimoto's senior. He's not his sort of right, elder they, they, and, and and commands his respect in the same way that yeah. Well, they, would if you think about it, they were kind of peers at at some point in their career. They kind of right. they were they were more or less they were in different companies because Iwata was at Hal, but they were partners within the same organization at about the same level. So there's there's a mutual understanding of where the other one is coming from. Well, yeah, I mean to obviously. Iwata has technically been Miyamoto's superior for, you know, since before he was president, because Iwata right. was kind of the, he was like the vice president of game development or something like that. He was an upper level management. He was being bred for the position, essentially, at that point. Right. But I think Greg makes a good point in that, you know, Iwata clearly doesn't have that kind of authoritative relationship with Miyamoto that Yamauchi did. And I wonder, I mean... It does feel like, and maybe you guys will disagree, but it does feel to me like since Awada took over, Miyamoto has sort of been running amok a little bit. And not, <laughs> not, in, not necessarily in a bad way, but he does seem a lot more unconstrained than before. Like he's getting weirder. Like he seems to have a lot more free reign than he, do, than he used to. That, that may be true. That may be true. I mean, I think Nintendo has been, I mean, in some ways Nintendo remains conservative. It remains, you know, the classical Japanese sort of business. But on the other hand, of course, they've been much more willing to take chances since uh, Iwata's uh, ascendancy. And, uh, and it's been explosively successful. I mean, he came in in 2003, if I remember correctly, as, as president. And of course, in 2004 was the launch of the DS, and it's been pretty much rosy ever since. Yeah, right. He yeah. he he came in and made and made Yamauchi a lot of money, essentially. Well, but supposedly, and this is really weird, but supposedly the DS was Yamauchi's idea, or at least he's taken credit yeah, he, for it. He was the one that was. He, well, that's where the famous quote comes from. Yamauchi was sort of the outgoing. You know, at the time he wasn't involved in so much anymore. But he said about you know either Nintendo will either rise to heaven or be condemned to hell on the basis yeah. of the. DS, which yeah. at the top, which was very counter to the third pillar thing. It's kind of, you know, everyone's all about the third pillar, which yeah. is kind of like this doesn't really matter that much. You know, this is a weird side project, but that's evidently not what Yamuchi thought, and he was probably he was right about that. Well, I don't think anybody Nintendo thought that at the time either. It was just what they had to say publicly versus yeah, it, it was it was rhetoric, and Yamuchi was off message, sort of you know, like an elderly politician. Well, I mean, <laughs> exactly. You know, certainly whatever his level of involvement was I you know I may never we may never know the full details of it but certainly Yamauchi was in charge of Nintendo for my entire childhood and 
you know, obviously had some role to play in the magic of Nintendo for 20 years. Well, I mean, long before that, but at least in the, when they were started doing video games, it was about right. 20 years. I do think, I mean, Awada, I think his legacy will be proven out in the coming years, especially with how we and DS kind of go down in history, which hasn't happened yet. And to what extent they can sustain those brands going forward. Yeah. Know, yeah. That, that's yeah. Good. Can they, you know, this kind of, you know, has something of a feel of lightning in a bottle and can you reproduce that over a period of time? I mean, that, right. that, that is going to be the, the really interesting part. But we go to, uh, just go to hardware though, because that's, that's what, uh, is sort of central to this, this question, uh, in terms of what RW thought of the difference between the two approaches. I think I, I, you go back to Nintendo, you know, in the early days, you know, probably when Yamuchi was perhaps most involved, arguably. I mean, they, 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 their MO was taking very modest technology and, right. and using, I mean, the, you know, the Famicom, um, you know, obviously was, was, it was created in 1983 with less than cutting edge technology and then was, you know, the, the system around the world as the NES into the nineties. So, I mean, this was not cutting edge tech and, and the Game Boy, of course, that was very much the philosophy of, of Gunpei Yokoi, who did a lot of the hardware stuff. Um, who sadly passed away in the late 90s. But I feel like that Nintendo, obviously in its absence, have reconnected with that spirit, with what they've done, with, with, with Wii and DS, actually. Yeah. That, they, that they've said, you know what, that, that isn't what made us success. You know, doing, you know, some of the stuff that the, the Super Nintendo did, or certainly the up your own arsehole N64 approach. <laughs> There's yeah. no other word for it. There is no other word for it. I mean, this, the, 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 the parallels with the PS3, which have been made many times, are chilling. Yeah. yeah. They'd sat on top for so long that they thought they were untouchable and used it as a license to just do uneconomic things. <laughs> yeah. The most fundamental Let's make a storage level. medium that costs $40. Yeah. <laughs> you know, genius. and guess what? You know, you, however powerful the brand is, you get bitten in the arse. So, so, uh, uh, eventually, by market forces, uh, they, the Nintendo fell foul of that. I, d- I don't think that was really specific to Yamuchi. As we say, we reproduced with Sony years later, a completely different set of people, different corporate culture. But I do think it was Yamuchi's fault. He was very stubborn. Not unique, not unique to him is what you're saying. It's not I, unique I, to him, I exactly. do think it was totally... It, the way the N64 was, is t- absolutely, that's Yamauchi all over it. Absolutely. It was his responsibility, and that, that will be the challenge for Iwata, is how to avoid something similar ever happening again, but I, yeah. I, I do feel the lessons have been learned. That was his virtual boy. But I think... <laughs> I think to a lesser extent. I think much, Nintendo... Of- much lesser extent. What Iwata has done is kind of reconnect Nintendo with its with its heritage in hardware design and things. So I wouldn't say that that's the key difference between well, them. Well, here's kind of two ways of looking at that alternatively, and one being that it's Nintendo looked at their competitors that they have right now versus when it was Sega, which honestly yeah. Sega. In terms of economic footing, nothing compared to what Nintendo had even during the SNES era. And yeah. now they have Sony, a massive, Microsoft. <laughs> so, a massive multinational corporation, and Microsoft, a huge software empire as their competitors. And they said to themselves, oh my god, we can't compete with these guys economically in terms of hardware development. So why bother? And I think in that case, it would be someone like Iwata who, who you know came out of the game design philosophy that would say, you know what, we're okay with doing something else in that area and trying to make it 
entertaining without this kind of just hardware push. But, mm-hmm. but that's the thing you see. I mean, it might have been tempting to say that you know, given that you've got someone who's coming from the, the software development side, that their bias might be towards you know, having hardware that does everything that, that allows them to shape the kinds of experiences that they want to make, and, uh, you know, and be technically you know, all it comes to. But that's not what Nintendo did. They stayed true to their principles of you know, not making a loss. Of, of being about accessibility or that sort of thing, and then, you know, making software experiences that kind of go around that. Well, I mean, Iwata's also so old school that he's probably really not too impressed by anything that's out there. You know, like, he's not like, oh my god, we have to wrap this in this kind of... Reflective coding! You know what I mean? Like, he just wouldn't, he would just be like, alright, well, you know, I made fun games way back in the day, and... I made Kirby, bitch. Yeah, exactly. Like, what, like the thing is really, like, what are you going to say to that guy in terms of, you know... Like, what kind of games are fun and what games aren't. And I think possibly coming from not necessarily just game development, but from the more creative end of the company versus just the business suit end of the company, you'd be more willing to see, well, wait, we can make a totally self-indulgent controller and and sell it that way to people. Because, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it was kind of self-indulgent. Like the zapper. <laughs> yeah, oh, God. I... I love the person and I love the personality contrast between Yamauchi and Iwata because it could not be more shocking. And yeah, it, yeah. I might have told this story once before a long time ago, but I was at E3 when so one thing you might forget is that Yamauchi's retirement and Iwata's ascendancy and promotion to that position were announced during E3. Oh, and God. Iwata was at E3 that year. And I had just met him that day before, (laughs) before we got the announcement, I'd shaken his hand and gotten his business card and I was stunned. I mean, it took me days to get over the shock that he was (laughs) Yamauchi's choice because obviously the way Japan is run, the way business is done in Japan, Yamauchi just basically said, I pick that guy. Well, and also the fact that Yamauchi was what had like 57% of the stock in the company. It's up to him and he's still on the board. It's still one of the wealthiest people in the country. <laughs> Number three. He's about the last person I would think of Yamauchi choosing to take his position because Wada is so fucking different. I mean, he's the polar opposite. He couldn't be more different from Yamauchi if he was American, honestly. <laughs> and I mean, it, it was so, I mean, we're talking Yamauchi is a guy who never left Japan ever, not even to go see his own baseball team play in Seattle. <laughs> He's never yeah. seen them. He's never <laughs> he, seen them play. He couldn't be bothered to get on a plane and go watch his baseball team play. This guy didn't speak a word of English and had no interest in doing so. Didn't play games, much less program them. And here you've got Awada. And, and by the way, Yamuchi was a total recluse, too. I mean, he gave an interview like once every five years, and still does now. But Awada as being named the successor as the CEO of Nintendo Company Limited, Awada is already in America speaking English to the media during the press conference and talking about the days when he used to program Kirby games. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. I mean, well, what, I mean, I mean, it is a paradigm shift in the way that company is run. If I had told you in, say, 1990, when did Crystal Shards come out? 2000? If I yeah, told, told you in 2000, hey, a guy that's working on this game is going to be the next president of Nintendo, <laughs> you, you probably would have puked because you would have just been like, what? <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> it's crazy. And you think of now, you know, all the stuff like Iwata asks and all that. You know, they cultivate his sort of cuddly, affable image. Oh, yeah. goofy. Well, I mean, he he's goofy, and to be honest, they they cultivate that same image with Miyamoto. They're both kind of goofy. Yeah, I mean, they, the only they do, they... the only person they trot out that's kind of aloof in that respect is Aunumai. Reggie. Well, Reggie. Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> really. He's the tough American. Yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. the cowboy. He's the fighter. I mean, R- Reggie almost is like a stereotype they bought for the Japanese market. Like, <laughs> he really is. He may actually be a robot. Actually, I think Reggie is another aspect of this. Yeah. That was the next E3. Like, Iwata ascended in 2003, and then in yeah. 2004, after he's had time to, you know, put the house in order, we get Reggie's grand debut at that E3, and that marked <laughs> You know, a very freak. significant change in how Nintendo of America were doing business. Well, and how independent, and well, not independent, but how influential the American branch was over corporate-wide decisions. I mean, things like the DS being released in America first, which Reggie has taken complete credit for, and yeah. probably rightfully so. He basically said, I talked to Mr. Awada and convinced him that we should get it first. Now, in the in the hindsight, probably wasn't the correct decision, but... You cannot imagine Arakawa doing that to Yamauchi. No, he was his son-in-law. He had no, exactly. No way. Arakawa yeah. was probably a nice guy, and I know he, you know, he works with Hank Rogers and Alexei Pajitnov and on the Tetris stuff in Hawaii. But Arakawa really was a puppet guy. I think Iwata basically installed Reggie and said, "I need someone to actually run this branch and be a leader." Well, well wait, wait. There, there was, there was somebody between Arakawa and and Reggie. Yes, his name was uh, something Kamishima, and uh, he was the he was the president of Nintendo of America. He also was basically a puppet, and <laughs> no, he was he was the he was the Japanese guy to assuage Japanese investors. The investors. And so anyway, after a couple of years, it became clear that Reggie is actually in charge of this branch. And so what they did was they relegated Kamishima to an honorary position, basically. I mean, he's still at NOA, but fuck me if I know what he does. Probably <laughs> not much. And, and they actually promoted Reggie to president of Nintendo of America, the first non-Japanese person to ever hold that position. So For, is th- first- this is all, this is Awada's doing. I mean, Awada is saying that we're going to change the way this company is run. It's pretty significant. They haven't changed things in the other regions yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if NOE's next president and CEO is not Japanese. Yeah, they, like, as, as the deference to Japan is very much more evident in Europe. So it is. I think we could see, <laughs> we could see, with stuff like pentatentacles probably, that's the only reasonable <laughs> look, explanation for that particular lingual Look, you should be crime. thrilled that you will get to go down in history as ha- being the only region where that title is that funny. <laughs> but, but, you know, but that, by contrast, is where you could see sort of Reggie's fingerprints on it. And that's, I think that is the difference primarily. I mean, you know, really, perhaps if they'd installed Stalin as the president of Nintendo <laughs> Company Limited, it might have been less dictatorial than uh, Yamuchi. But that is certainly with Iwata that you've got a more decentralized approach, a more consensual right. approach that is informed by a, someone with a game design background. And they are all very crucial differences uh, mm. from what you had before. But at the same time even though he comes from the HAL side and stuff, it seems to be that Iwata, obviously in close concert with Miyamoto, knows what made Nintendo successful in the first place. And they do still go to that touchstone 
very strongly for what they're doing now. Well, I think a lot of their moves also had to do with uh, the, the GameCube's performance. Just because, you know, I mean, I think after the GameCube kind of, you know, failed in the marketplace to a certain degree, I think it was really time for a change. I think Iwata saw that, and so he's like, you know what, I think we need somebody that knows his territory better than, who's been in this territory for a long time, been in the corporate climate of this territory for a long time. Sold kind of a lot of out. Bigfoot pizzas. Yeah, a lot of stuff, like, just like, like, and, like random stuff, like not video games. VH warning. Yeah, very, think, like, very good, very savvy marketing wise. It's like, that guy, he works at Pizza Hut, get me him. Yep. Um, <laughs> these fat Americans will love this guy that markets them pizza. Reggie is a miracle worker. He's one of the best things that ever happened in Nintendo, but. He's been huge. I, I think one he last thing huge. I want to say about Awada is that the other thing that really surprised me when he was chosen is that he is 40. Years younger than Yamauchi. I mean, yes. he's a young guy. He's <laughs> yeah. younger than Miyamoto. Yeah. So as long as Iwata doesn't dishonor himself by like totally screwing the pooch on 3DS or something like that, he could be in charge of Nintendo for the next 30 years. Like some sort of Cuban dictator. <laughs> well, I, I, I think of him more as like a Willy Wonka. <laughs> a Willy Wonka, all right. Or a Cuban dictator. That is a good. <laughs> place to stop. So announce the competition. Yes, yes, yes. What are okay. okay, so, yes, we are just a few episodes away from 200. The big 200. The big E3 will put a bit of a, a, a bit of a stop in that. It'll take us a little longer to get there, but uh, we can wait. And uh, one of the things that we want to do, you might remember a few episodes ago, certain events were discussed taking place after the drunk cast during PAX East and that were censored for the public good. <laughs> but there have been expressions uh, of regret at this that people have to know what happened. And so I have decided that this audio can be made public under certain conditions. And so what I want the listeners to do is to demonstrate their demand to hear this by writing their version of what might have happened. So what you're going to do, you're going to email RFN at Nintendo World Report and you're going to write down what you think happened after the drunk cast that was so funny and so terrible that it is a source of deep shame to those involved. Mm. All of whom have already waived their right of self-incrimination by talking about it. <laughs> These are the details that I will give you to work there. We already know that Johnny, Carl, Mike, Lauren and Neil, and John... And John. Mm -hmm. Right, not James, not James. I was, I was safe. Completed the debauchery that was the drunk cast. <laughs> completed a bottle of Ciroc. <laughs> <laughs> Very hungry, they were going to get something to eat. And then something happened, and that's what you, the listeners, have to decide for yourself. <laughs> something went awry. And it involves a free gift from an independent uh, game developer. Piece of swag. A piece of swag, yeah, and it also involves a certain catchphrase that was used during the episode where this uh, issue was raised, so it would refer back to that. N not in the drunk cast, but in the episode where we talked about in it. In the episode where it was discussed with Carl just mm -hmm. recently. So, those are the clues. That's what you've got to work with. Use that to write down a story, and what will happen is, if we get enough stories from everyone, I will judge how many is enough uh, to outweigh the <laughs> doubtless damage that will be done to the collective <laughs> psyche of our listeners by releasing this information if we get enough stories i will play the audio of the story being recounted during episode 200 but 
this is the best part. If your story is my favourite, which will either be, depending on the circumstances, the closest to the truth or the farthest away from the truth. The most amazing. The mo- yeah, the, whatever I like the best, depending on what it is, will win a special prize. And that is an autographed copy by our own James Jones of the amazing, astonishing, landmark gaming achievement <laughs> that is King of Clubs. The boomerang title. <laughs> so that's the big prize you've got to play for. Two prizes to play for, really. Hearing the story and the autograph King of Clubs, all for 200. So get brainstorming. Don't think about E3 or anything like that. This is boring. No one cares. <laughs> get <laughs> Pour all your attention into this story. What could possibly have happened that would be this bad? Oh. So RFN at NintendoWorldReport.com. Get to it. Yeah. Um, of course, that same email address is what you should use to send in your letters. And, uh, of course, thank you to everybody who sent in letters for this episode. We will try to do this every week. Next week, we may or may not have time. But if you have some pre-E3 questions or uh, ideas, suggestions, uh, if you want to throw in your crazy predictions, that would be the proper time to air them out. So you can send all of those to RFN at NintendoWorldReport.com. Let us know some name that you want to be called by and uh, a rough idea of where you're writing in from. That would be nice. Also check out the NWR newscast. Uh, I'm going to be on the new episode of that, so you can figure out what I've been reviewing. That's an exciting <laughs> segment. Johnny <laughs> <laughs> just sits there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, we. It's just we... Johnny saying I'm too old for this shit over and over. Again. <laughs> What's wrong with you, kids? <laughs> God. Yeah. Uh, no, I had a fun time doing that episode, and uh, of course the new uh, Radio Trivia Podcast Edition is out. Actually, on the new episode of Radio Trivia Podcast Edition, you can hear TYP and myself go over five import games. These were games that were originally released only in Japan, but eventually came out in North America through some legitimate means. Uh, and among those, Sin and Punishment, the original Sin and Punishment for N64. So go check out that. You can hear what the music's like and get extra hyped up for the Wii sequel coming out later in the month. So definitely check that out as well. It's on iTunes and our website. All right, that's all. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks for listening. And uh, we will be back next week for one more round of pre-E3 predictions and shenanigans. See you then. Bye. Bye-bye. Later. So I, I assume that Aaron did not repeat our string of success in Nintendo tournaments, huh? I, I don't think Aaron was competing. No, he's not a, he's not a Pokemonster. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just went there. Oh, God. Oh, well. Episode... <laughs> <laughs> that was brutal. Episode 197. I mean, he's not you, a Pokemonster. Ellipses, er. You, you basically <laughs> just, like, half-deconstructed the abbreviation... Right, because the mon stands for monster anyway. So oh my god! It was god. a complete fail. Now you're just you're going too far with it, Johnny. You're going too yeah. far. Yeah. You did first. John's gonna John's gonna blow up on somebody in a minute. This is all getting cut anyway. In reviews, Pedro takes a look at the WiiWare port of Capcom's Phoenix Wright Trials and Tribulations. Uh, James.
Yes. Who am I to deconstruct Capcom's business plans? <laughs> <laughs> so in the blog, we have the continuation of the My Favorite Nintendo Character series in which Pedro espouses the justification for his love of the Big Ape Donkey Kong. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ! This is a fucking... Gee, what is this? Fuck! God, God, dude, fuck all with it. This is my Waterloo. This is my disaster. I can't fix this. <laughs> I literally just went and read John's... John's little right up here. I just picked every third word, and that's what I ended up. Oh boy, I didn't realize how ridiculous that write up was until I just read it. Wow. His love expressed his death for love. I can I can redo this with less sexual innuendo if you want. <laughs> Could you redo it with more more sexual innuendo? I can try. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's why. Whoa! <laughs> Turn into the Scooby Doo. I'm. What I'm, just my, happened? My is... <laughs> that was terrible. Don't play me. Where oh, am I right now? It's Mario's drawing. What am I stepped Santa. into? What state oh, did I wake up in today? Oh my god! Fill up, fill up. <laughs> <laughs> oh my eyes are watering. I'm laughing so hard. Uh. And look, at least, uh, at least you have stinger material. <laughs> I don't know whether he's even qualified in that. I, I, uh, uh... <laughs> this is a disaster. I can't believe you used this Donkey Kong, the Donkey Kong voice. Of all people, Greg did it. That's amazing. <laughs> it's so bad. It, it just is. in my mind. <laughs> it's, it's like the power glove. He's just... <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Uh. <laughs> oh, I gotta pull it together. Gotta what pull did they just say? They just turned into Pokemon, like Luigi, Daisy, Donkey. Why? What I'd really be curious about is what Miyamoto's role in as manager has changed. Yeah, I hope I hope Miyamoto doesn't get promoted again. Well, what were they promoted to? Debbie God? I mean, <laughs> but I mean, could he literally just show up? At I don't know retro and literally be like all of your games suck everyone's gone yeah he, he's, he, he, he did that happened. about eight yeah. years ago I know but I mean could he could he literally just start liquidating people I mean what's his power level I when mean, you say liquidate you mean some sort of gun that melts yeah. people <laughs> no. no it's a backpack it shoots uh, this clear liquid yeah, I mean acid. I mean is is he responsible for NST's apparent demise I mean what what he probably he very well could be. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I don't think he fires people, probably, but I think he fires games. Firing people would be beneath him, to be honest with you. Yep. He calls in Cammy, and she <laughs> takes some names. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> she, <laughs> I'm not bringing smiles to your what? face today. <laughs> you are not giving a smile for your face. <laughs> I don't like that voice, John. I don't. <laughs> Smiles to more faces. <laughs> <laughs> this is about they sort of doing some sort of Joker style. Let's put a smile on that I've face. Got to, I've got to write a script for for John's Cammy and Greg's Donkey Kong. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, he's still in that voice right now. That is a good place to stop.